how to overcome a learning disability in your child and help them and yourself achieve success with Lois Letchford, the author of Reversed, a memoir and literacy problem solver on episode number 199 of the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. My husband, as I said, is an academic. And in the 1995, when Nicholas is in the second grade, my husband has study leave back in Oxford and our family join him. And I decide I'm going to remove Nicholas from school for six months. I'm going to teach him at home. So we had this extraordinary set of circumstances in a historic city. And I bought a series of books with me called Success for All, and I start working with them. I failed, and I failed again. I'm no better than his first grade teacher. My mother-in-law was with me, and she heard my frustration, and she said to me, Lois, put away what's not working and make learning fun. This is Michelle Quay from ElevateLifeCoaching.org. I love to help women coaches who struggle from confidence and courage to tell their unique stories so that they can get seen, get heard, and get hired. Dr. Brad Miller is here to guide you through discouragement to peace, prosperity, purpose on Beyond Adversity Podcast. Welcome to the Beyond Adversity Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller, the show dedicated to helping you crush adversity and succeed in life. Brad believes you deserve a life that is fulfilling and impactful, and this show is designed to help you navigate beyond adversity and achieve your life of peace, prosperity, and purpose. Now, here's Dr. Brad. Hello, good people. Dr. Brad Miller here on the Beyond Adversity Podcast, helping you to... uh, Grow through what you go through in your life, overcoming such adversities as depression, divorce, disease, debt, and death to achieve your life of peace, prosperity, and purpose. You can always head over to my website, drbradmiller.com, where we have over uh, over 190 episodes of this podcast where we call upon experts and people who have faced the odds, navigated through them, and have achieved success. You can do the same thing. Head on over to Dr. Brad Miller, to com. We have a free gift for you there and lots of great, inspiring, and helpful stories, such as the case today when we're talking today about your children, particularly children with learning disabilities. If this is your case, or you know someone who is, who has a learning disability, something like dyslexia, then this is the podcast for you to turn to uh, tune into today. Our guest with us is Dr. Lois Letchford. She is the author of Reversed, a memoir and a literacy problem solver. She was cruising along in her life with some accomplishments in the academic world herself. When at the age of 39, she realized that she was looking to teach her second son how to read, and she noticed there was a problem. The problem turned out to be a literacy problem, dyslexia. 
And she goes through in our conversation today and in her book, Reversed, about the great uh, agony and trying to find experts and trying to find situations to deal with the emotions of this and the feelings that she had, both of uh, being depressed and not adequate and other things like this. And we talk about her feelings, and we also then talk about what she did about it and how she began to discover and to follow her instincts, look for a change of mindset, value living in the moments, and how eventually she came to the place where her passion helped her to remove a label of a child who was sometimes called, you know, the worst child ever, and to see him achieve at high levels. And she did as well. It's an inspirational story for parents and teachers and listeners to help you to believe in yourself and to believe in your children and to think above average. When we come back on the other side of the interview, we're going to talk about some, some specific things we can learn from Lois Letchford that you can do, that you can take action for, particularly if you find yourself in this type of situation, uh, people with learning disabilities and uh, uh, what she sometimes calls uh, twice exceptional uh, children. Here's uh, where you could find her. Her website is loisletchford.com, L-O-I-S. L-E-T-C-H-F-O-R-D dot com. That's where you can find Lois Letchford and more about her book, Reversed, a memoir and literacy problem solver. But right now, let's get into our conversation with Lois Letchford. Lois Letchford, Letchford, who is our, our, our great guest here today, she's the book of Reversed, a memoir, and she is a literacy problem solver, which means that she is an educator. And I have a heart for that coming from a family of educators, and we certainly are looking forward to hearing a great story today and learning a few things from this great educator. Lois Letchford, Letchford welcome to Beyond Adversity today. Thank you, Brad. I'm delighted to be here. It is awesome that you're here here with us here today, and you are a literacy problem solver, which indicates to me that there's been some problems in the area of dealing with matters of literacy in your life. At least that's my assumption here, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, but tell us your story a little bit of what kind of led you to become a literacy problem solver. What kind of adverse life event did you have to face in order to get you in the track that you're on now? In 1994, my second son failed first grade. At the end of the year, he was tested and the testing showed that he could read 10 words. He had no strengths and he had a low IQ. What had happened through that year was that every day he bit his fingernails, he wet his pants and he stared into space. And what we know is when children struggle early on in life with literacy, the chances of getting out of that hole or that bucket are very, very small. That's the start. Yes. And yeah, I'll let you go on for a second there. But that must, just to get that news, as a mother and as a person, as an educator yourself, that must have just rocked your world. That must have been devastating. My husband is an academic. He was the top of his school, and he did a PhD at Oxford University. And we have this son who I've been told has a low IQ. 
So you have not only the situation dealing with your son, you got some family dynamic stuff going on here, I would assume. You're kind of like, how did this happen? You know, we come from academic background. You know, we're smart people. We got intellectual acuity here. And But what happened here? So tell me what about what happened in the family then when this news came down and you had to deal with it within the family. That's a really good question because when I went home and told my husband, you know, this is the test that's been done and this is the diagnosis, my husband said to me, that's a lower bound. Our son Nicholas can look like that on any given day. You know, he's an academic. It's one test done on one day and he could see the strengths in our child. In my book I write about, yes, that was really positive of him to say that and it gave me a mindset to say, oh, okay, but also I think in many ways he underestimated the challenge of struggle that our son had with language and that wasn't acknowledged anywhere. Mm. So the challenges that your son had, Nicholas, was had to do with was it the retention of information or was it also the language of speaking it for a speech impediment or stuttering or anything along that line? All of it. Okay. And, okay, this is the role for parents. What I did not recognise at the time was that Nicholas, when he was 8 to 18 months, had constant ear infections. Mm. And when you have constant ear infections, it actually impacts the brain and brain growth, and they don't have the language input that they need. Wow. And that's a problem. I I, uh, relate to this more than you might know on a couple of different levels because I – uh, and one of those people uh, who had a lot of ear infections when I was a kid and ended up being in speech therapy in school for many, many years for a bad stuttering problem. And um, even now, literally today, as we speak, I got a text from my daughter that my granddaughter got her tubes in her ears just earlier today because of uh, some factors going on with her her speech patterns being impacted. She's only f- four years uh, four years old, being impacted by some of what we're talking about here. So it's pertinent, yeah. pertinent to me. Speech and the language that they miss. Because what happens in the brain? Now, I'm not a brain scientist, but what I've read is, you know, the brain comes complete and it's got neurons in there and the neurons fire together with what they hear and what they see and what they do. If, you, if you're not hearing something or you're not seeing it, the connections in the brain for that area drop off. And the book 30 Million Words, and I can't remember the author, is about is written by a hearing lady who does implants okay. for children with hearing loss. And she's the one who talks about this because she said it's not the implant. The implant makes a huge difference. Sure. But the growth, the growth is then how many words the child hears after that. Wow. So you're talking about the cochlear implants, those type of things? So yes. Yes, okay. yes, yes. And, and the author is uh, well-known and she's the brain and all that happens there. And that's what I didn't recognize with Nicholas because what my son saw was our Nicholas was phenomenal with doing puzzles. His spatial awareness, even as a child, was at the top of his range. But the language component was the absolute other extreme. And when you go to school, what do people want? They want the language. Sure. They don't care that you can do puzzles. It's not relevant right. at that time. It's relevant and he can't understand the teacher. He's ostracized 
Academically, he's ostracised socially and he's devastated emotionally because what he has picked up in that first 12 months of school is, I'm not very smart. Okay. So you have this situation with his academic situation. You've got family dynamics going on and you're a caring, loving mother trying to support your son to be accepted and loved and connected not only in the home life, but, you know, with friends and social life and everything else. So you got a dilemma here. You got a problem you got to deal with. I want to know, Lois, what did you do? What was your movements? What was your actions that you took to try to address this problem? Well, this is what happened. My son, my husband, as I said, is an academic. And in the 1995, when Nicholas is in the second grade, my husband has study leave back in Oxford and our family joined him. And I decide I'm going to remove Nicholas from school for six months. I'm going to teach him at home. So we had this extraordinary set of circumstances in a historic city. And I bought a series of books with me called Success for All and I start working with them. I failed and I failed again. I'm no better than his first grade teacher. My mother-in-law was with me and she heard my frustration and she said to me, Lois, put away what's not working and make learning fun. And I needed that input to get me out of the hole I was in, to stop, to put it away and rethink. And her words caused me to say, well, what can I do? And I knew Nicholas could rhyme words and I knew he could see patterns. So with that limited information, I started to write little poems for him. The poetry transformed our classroom and our learning because instead of Nicholas being stressed and anxious, he laughed. I read the poem to him. He joined in. We found the rhyming words. We had fun. One poem led to the next and the next and the next. And what poetry does in the brain is poetry lines the brain with language. Mm -hmm. And then you're asking questions. What does the poem mean? Then he's illustrating them. And our poetry just grew and grew and grew and grew until you come to double O, double O words. And I thought, oh, Cook, look, book, write a poem about that. I thought of Captain James Cook, the last of the great explorers. Yes. And I wrote a poem about Captain Cook had a notion there's a gap in the map in the great big ocean and the poem was on. <laughs> and the beauty of poetry is that you've got this really, you know, four lines with massive ideas. And so we're starting to ask questions about Captain Cook. And while we're doing this, my Nicholas with this supposed low IQ said to me, who came before Captain Cook? I said, oh, that's easy, Nicholas. That was Christopher Columbus. And he said to me, and who came before Columbus? So he started to go deeper himself. That's great. The moment he said that question, I thought, this child doesn't have a low IQ. And that was critical for me. And now we're also in the city of Oxford because every time you go somewhere, you've got history around Yes. It. We walk into the Bodleian Library and we go to the gift shop and we say, where would we see a Ptolemy map? Because Captain... Christopher Columbus's latest map was drawn by a man called Ptolemy in 240 AD. So his map was over a 1,000 years old. We walk into the Bodleian Library and say, where would we see some, some Ptolemy maps? And the lady turns around and says, oh, 
these are just new in our gift shop. Here's a book of Ptolemy maps. Wow. That'll be five pounds. <laughs> so we're not only talking about it, we're seeing it, we're exploring it. I've tapped into his curiosity and our world is exploding. And I take it that he went from there to be quite, uh, you know, he built on this foundation that had to do with really applying kind of artistic expression, poetry and visuals and other aspects rather than just being pigeonholed as being learning disabled or whatever terminology that we want to use. That's exactly mm -hmm. right. The interesting part was we, re we returned to Australia, to our home, okay. and I met the lady who'd done the testing, and I was just so excited over all that Nicholas has done. I knew his reading was going in millimetres, mm -hmm. but his thinking was in in kilometres. And I said to her, Nicholas has asked these amazing questions. She stood in front of me, put her hands on her hips and said, well, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. Oh, man, that stings. And it, it just hurts on so many levels to have to know that an educator said those words, for one thing, to you, and then for you to receive them after. But also, you know, after you've had some success here, it kind of bust your balloon, that kind of thing, right? So... That was the idea, mm -hmm. except she didn't. Her words made me think, and I went back to her and I said, you can call him whatever you like, but then don't expect him to learn like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that, from that moment on, I went about sending him to school and making sure everything I did at home was different. And with that, he comes to read and write effectively at home in the classroom, and that's where he and it, over time, very slow mm -hmm. at the time. But but here's the thing, as I'm understanding it, Lois, you not only changed your pattern, changed your actions, but you kept at it. You were consistent. You didn't let it go. Exactly. And I didn't believe what that diagnostician told me. Yes. And her words just, it laid the foundation for my future life that we label children, we give them these terrible labels in order really to put the parent down and the child down and say, it's saying, well, that kid can't do it and you've got too high expectations and, and, and. And what it did for me was made me say, not you're wrong, but we can change things, we can do things and we don't have to write children off at age sixes and seven. Wow. And so much in learning, those patterns are set in those early grade levels and being pre, you know, preschool as well in terms of the expectations regarding, you know, you know, do I, am I, am I a smart kid or am I a dumb kid or, or am I athletic or non-athletic or am I a social person or a non-social person? So many of those patterns are set, set at that time and you didn't let it, you know, what a lot of folks do, and I've seen it myself, and I know the people in my life who are educators have seen it happen, where some people get stuck. They get pigeonholed and they stay there, you know, they stay there. And not only they get stay there, the students, but their parents and others get stuck there as well into accepting it. You didn't, and that's awesome. Let's go for a minute, Lois, about how this kind of became a little bit more than an academic exercise. What I mean by that, this had to be an emotional, even a spiritual adventure for you. Would you agree with agree with that statement? And if so, tell me how that became kind of a part of it, spiritual, emotional aspects to this whole journey with your son as well. 
emotionally, when my son wasn't learning, I was devastated, I was stressed, my world was consumed by Nicholas and writing poems. When we started the turnaround, our world went from being horrific to this is so exciting. This is unbelievable. Now, I'm talking about this, you know, 20-something years later. I was always worried about what he's going to do because his learning was happening so slowly. And at one stage, my husband said to me, Lois, you do have three sons. Oh, wow. That kind of stings too. Wow, okay. But it's, it. you know, when you've got these children, it, when something doesn't go to normal, as a mother, you do everything you can to help sure. them. And I, I had a, a friend whose six-year-old son had been diagnosed with leukemia. And we're in the same position because you're going, what else can I do? to help this child and the future looks very, very bleak and very short because if I don't do something, there's no one else who's going to support right, me. Right. I felt, you know, if I don't do it, what's going to happen? And that's what worried me. Yes. So, yes, in dramatic emotional and spiritual journey and um, in spiritually, I mean, I have, I cannot explain the number of accidents that allowed my son to achieve, and it just moves me so much. And no child's journey should happen by accident, but my son's did. And instead of having a child who's unemployed or unemployable, my son has a PhD. Wow. In applied mathematics from Oxford University. That's not too bad, I wouldn't think. No, you're not a proud mom at all, are you? <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, well, that. Well, it, it's the journey that happened, and there was another step. You know, cause my husband had study leave in Oxford. How many times does that happen? Well, that's that's kind of you know the highest of the highest level, I would assume, in the academic world. And so apparently, there were some resources available for you to you know you mentioned the library, for instance, to connect up and to help kind of fire off some synapses there with your son that might not have been made available in other circumstances. But what I'm hearing you say is there were kind of some spiritual coincidences, perhaps, or maybe I would yeah. might call them spiritual exactly. appointments, where you've had made a yes. connection to something that went to a deeper level, you, where you connected basically with something beyond yourself, a higher power, spiritual yeah. level, something yeah. you know that this was something going on here that was above just yeah. kind of the pure academic exercise of Trying to find how to learn yeah. something, so that must have been right. was that must have been a kind of a cool deal, not only for yourself but for your son and your family as well, to, to see some growth happening here. Yeah, and I mean, you talk about Oxford; it wasn't just the library. Every time you turn a corner in Oxford, there's something historical, and there are plaques to people like Edmund Haley, and I mean, the list goes on. And Boyle, Hook, and Boyle, it just goes on and on and on and on. And my husband, you know, he was an expert in this field anyway, and he could tell you things. So you walk past this college. Oh, Isaac Newton went there. No, Isaac Newton didn't go here. He was at Cambridge. But so-and-so and so-and-so went okay. there. That's that's kind of that is wild, you know. That's of course that's kind yeah, of on my, wild. you know, of the places I'd like to visit in the world. I've been to lots of places in the world, but I've never been to England, and I certainly want to go to Oxford and Cambridge for that matter, and uh, some other places yeah. as well. But uh, yeah, that's awesome. Let's talk a little bit about 
Let's talk about the cognitive piece of this for a minute, because you've already touched on it here. And and what I'm interested in here, Lois, is how we think, mindset, how we kind of shift our patterns. And you mentioned, you know, some of the experiences that you, some of the evaluators had and so on. And they're taught to evaluate in a certain way, of course. But what I'm getting at here is with yourself and with your son and everyone else involved with this situation, what were some of the mind shifts that had to happen that goes to things such as patterns or habits or rituals that you may have had before that had to shift here, both personally and in your relationship to your son? I'm talking about patterns, rituals, disciplines. That's an interesting question. That's complicated. But I don't know if I can answer it because it's overwhelming. But to shift my mindset from this child is dumb and all I have to do to teach him to read is learn about decoding, that was the big shift. Okay. That was the first shift, that literacy is more than just decoding and that how I see the child If I just see that child as dumb and all I'm going to do is teach them the letters and the sound, I failed that child. Mm. You had to go to a different level. I had to. And, you know, because of that, I became, I went back to school and I became a literacy specialist. And the first thing I deal with is how do I see that child sitting in front of me? They have, they're age 12 or 13, they can't read. How do I see them? Do I just see them as dumb or do I see them as future rocket scientists? Yeah. So the expectation we have of others makes a big difference, doesn't it? How we see them. If we see them like a four or five, that's one thing. If we see them like a 10 on a scale, that's a whole different thing. And then with that attitude, if they're future rocket scientists, how am I going to teach them? Yes. What do I have to do to teach this child to read? And that's my driver. That's awesome. And from there, I, you know, we moved around the world. I was in Lubbock, Texas, and I met a mother whose 13-year-old son was non-reading after four years in a phonics-only reading program. Mm. And I taught him to read over the summer. At the end of the summer, the mother writes to the school district and said, you employ this woman or I sue you. (laughs) I got employed. (laughs) Is that how it shook shook out then? Oh, my gosh. And then with that, I am in touch with all these other children who have failed reading programs. Mm. And and that's, you know, Nicholas's story and my students who had failed and failed and failed is what drives me. Because the moment children fail, we say they are not very smart. Yeah, and that's a label. Oh, my gosh, it is so powerful and so devastating. So, And children pick it up. Of course they do. Children, yeah, of course up. they do. Right away, too. Right, right away, and then yes. it lingers on. So, it lingers on in all kinds of patterns here. And so, let's shift for a second to what you're doing now. What I mean by that is, obviously, here you've had your personal experience with your son at, when he was uh, first grade or second grade, whatever it was, and and you've worked with it the whole time. And you made your, you've gone to emotional levels, you've gone to some spiritual levels, you took action, and now you're serving others. You wrote a book about this. You've mentioned some of the people you've worked with. Tell us what you're working with now. What is it? Tell us about your book, uh, Reversed, a memoir, and tell us about what kind of things you offer to others, how you're serving others through what you've experienced. I wrote the book because I was astonished at the level of support and and privilege we needed to have my son learn to read. 
So I wrote the book to say when your child's struggling, get hold of my book and know that your child can be taught to read. That's the first. Now I teach other children and parents can talk to me. I support parents. I believe that children can be taught to read and write effectively and go to college and all the rest of it. So uh, I have a reading writing program and, and I have a podcast. My podcast is titled When Learning is Trauma. Hmm. Wow. The podcast came about because when my son graduated, I went back to him and I said, you know, I thought, now I can ask Nicholas about what happened in first grade because I didn't really know. My confident, articulate son cried. Wow. What? And not a word emerged from his mouth. What a moment. What a moment. And I was in shock. I hadn't recognised that level of trauma from one year in school. And then I thought, I can't answer this now. I can't talk about it. But I said, Nicholas, tell me what happened when you and I learned together. And it was like a f switch flipped in his brain. And he laughed. And he said, I remember the poems you wrote to me. And he named the poems. Mm. And then he said, the mapping, I'll never forget the mapping. The mapping taught me to love learning. And I never want to stop learning. What an emotional moment and for that, everybody involved and one of those transformative moments, right? A transformative moment. That's exactly right, a transformative moment. And what is education? It's not um, an opportunity to have transform transformation of the mind and of your life. That's what it's there to do. And I often think what could have happened and what happens to so many children, particularly children who are minorities or for some reason not in the mainstream, how even with a husband who's an academic, that we were so quickly pushed aside to be told your child is not very smart. Yes, it is a, an incredible challenge for our world right right now. And, you know, I happen, I pastor an inner city church, and one of the programs we have is we do uh, some educational pieces after school and so on, tutoring for some of the underserved children in our urban school district where we are at in, in Indianapolis. Long story short, we had to set up some special learning opportunities for in-home learning, you know, during the COVID crisis. And we were able to do that, but became very evident that need, that the suffocating, you know, need for educational services for children and how it makes a, such a huge, huge difference and sets, sets the pattern. And so I appreciate what you're doing, what you're saying here. And you've already mentioned one story about the woman in Lubbock, Texas, who came to you, but I'm Really interested in maybe one more story, Lois, about uh, a person or situation where you just saw something cool happen. You mentioned about in your own life, this moment with your son, something cool happened, but now you're working with others. Tell me a story about some person you've worked with or situation that you had this transformative, heartwarming experience. Because I became a literacy reading specialist in Lubbock, I was in touch with an, you know a number of students who were... 14 and 16 who'd failed to learn to read. One was 16-year-old boy, Twain. He came to me with no words, couldn't read anything. And turning a child around like that takes it. Yes. So I, I started working with him. And one of the things I always do with my students is give them, I turn a short story into a play. That's great. There aren't that many short stories you could, that are engaging and have the right 
length and this, that and the other that you can work with. And the first story I had was about a family, a father and a mother, and the son teases the parents in their home. Hmm. I read this to my student, Twain, and he's a 16-year-old African-American boy, and it didn't click, didn't gel. And I thought, "Mm, not working, put it away. The next story I had was about two girls and a father, single father and his daughter and the daughter's friend. And I'm teaching two boys. And I said to them, boys, this story is so funny. I don't want to read about girls. <laughs> okay. Which is what you'd expect. Sure. And the other boy said, yeah, yeah, I'll listen. And they listened and they roared with laughter. And I said to them, you know, boys, I can't ask you to be girls, but what if we take this story and turn it around? I'll, I'll be a mother, not a father, and you can be two boys. Oh, yes, they said. That was transformative. We read the play. We're doing really well with it. And then three quarters of the way through one day, my twain says, looks at me and everything's been going so well. And he looks at me and he's angry with his favourite teacher. And he says, we wouldn't say those words. Twain, I said, yes, you know, you wouldn't say the word. This story was written by an Australian and he's using the Australian experience. But we wouldn't say those words, he said. Twain, we've turned the whole story around. What would you like to say? And my student said, we'd be the captain of the football team. We'll be doing our assignments and we're doing something else, da-da-da-da. And the words just flew out of his mouth. Wow. I was astonished at his ability to speak and think so quickly, but it taught me the power of cultural appropriate literacy and cultural appropriate language when we're dealing with the most vulnerable student. It taught you something well, and it is a, a bit of a learning experience and a bit of an indictment on a lot of our educational systems as they are that we just... In order to give people the best opportunity to succeed, we have to understand the framework or the cultural uh, circumstances that they are in. I know that I see that in the situation I am, which is a church I serve, which I mentioned is an urban area, and we have to deal with lots of culturally uh, appropriate things. And so that's awesome. Awesome story there. Thank you for, for sharing that. Lots of more stories out there. There's lots of opportunity in this world here, and you're a problem solver. And so if people want to learn more about you, Lois, how they can be in contact with you, learn about your book or anything about you, maybe they've got, maybe there's someone here in our words here today who have their own circumstance that they're dealing with, a child or someone in their life who have literacy issues. How can people get in contact with you and be more about what you are about here? I have a website, loisletchford.com. I have resources on there. Connect with me through the website and tell me your story and see what we can do because the most important thing in my life to others is to say we must teach your child to read. And we can do that. And I believe in you, the parent, and I believe in the child. Read my book, write a review, share it. And on Twitter this week, a person just put up one of the five best books she's read this year. One of them was mine. Wow. That must have felt really good. That's great. Yes. Well, it is, as I mentioned before, it's such an important issue. I've seen it myself in my own life with some of my own kids and also people in my life where, you know, 
if you don't have some of the one of the foundations of life is reading and speaking and you know if you if you have your troubles in those areas it's really going to impact everything else and so what you're doing is critically it's critically vital for uh functioning in this world and I want to say thank you for being a teacher and for being an educator and caring enough about your son to uh, go to do whatever it takes. I love that. I love that because if you're going to get if you're going to get through adversity, you have to you have to buck up a little bit. You got to get after it, and you got to work hard and care enough about the circumstances to get to get through it, or, or else you're going to stay stuck, and that's not where you want to be. So appreciate you being with us. And I heard her book is reversed. A memoir. She uh, blogs at loisletchford.com. I'll put connections to that, links to that on our website, drbradmiller.com. It's been our pleasure to have on our on our podcast today, the Beyond Adversity podcast, Lois Letchford. Thank you, Lois. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. You can find a complete archive of all episodes at drbradmiller.com. That's drbradmiller.com. Or subscribe for free through Apple Podcasts and never miss an episode. Each week, we bring you a message to crush adversity and live your life of peace, prosperity, and purpose.